enough of this um, happiness and joy in a Christian circle. We got to stop this right now and, you know, cease, cease and desist. That's my sarcasm. Sorry about that. It's coming out. Hi, uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is John O'Hare. My wife, Susie, over here, I'll let Susie wave. Uh, we've been married a short 41 years, and uh, we have two sons, and they're both married, and we have um, four grandchildren and a fifth that is coming this next week. So we're very excited for that. Our son, John, and his wife, Hannah, are adopting a little boy. Um, and this came out of the blue. They had been told uh, in December that expect, you know, nine months to a year and you'll hear from us. And they called them 12 days ago and said, we've got a little boy. He's going to be born. And uh, the birth mom wants you guys to be the parents. So um, their pregnancy has lasted uh, 14 days. So <laughs> it's very fast. So we're very excited for them. Uh, thanks so much. Um, uh, I thanked Chris for letting me uh, be here. Susie and I now live in Colorado Springs. Uh, we work with the Navigators in their World Missions Department. Uh, Susie and I were missionaries in Kenya for uh, 14 years. And um, when, I when we both retired from desert, um, former colleagues of ours in Africa with NAV Missions asked us if we would come and help them in the department that cares for and equips missionaries on the field and when they come home. So it's a great opportunity to shepherd and encourage and build up um, the families. I, I'll give you a little trade secret here. Missionaries are perfect, and they never have any problems. And if you believe that, I have land in Florida. I'll sell you. So leave it at that. Um, we um, are going to continue on in the book of Matthew, and you've been going through the book of Matthew, so if you would, if you have your Bibles with you and want to, if you turn, uh, that would be great, if you turn to Matthew 23, um, and while Brian gets me a stand here and hits me with it to make sure I behave myself, that's high enough, I just need some stabilize notes and such. Um, this is not your rainbows and kitties and uh, flowers and fun chapter in the book of Matthew. This is one of the more um, disturbing chapters in the Gospels. Um, and what Matthew is basically doing is um, in the story of Jesus' life is showing how Christ's um, confrontation with the religious leaders of the day comes to a head. You know, um, Jesus, well, let, 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 me, let me put it in a question form, and I've, I've asked the vineyard this question before, and you might have heard me, but I'm going to ask it again. Why did Jesus come to the planet? So I'd like you to turn to someone you're sitting with and see how many answers you can come up with. Why did Jesus come to the planet? Go, turn to each other.
Okay. Um, I began asking that question about five years ago at Desert uh, Christian when I was teaching seniors there. I, I got that question from Dallas Willard. And it's very interesting, Dallas's point, and I saw this at Desert, because we had kids from 60 different churches in town. So a real broad spectrum of the Christian community and tradition. And every year when I would ask that, the first answer I would get is, Jesus came to die on the cross so we could go to heaven. And I would go, uh, does the scripture say that? And they would fumble around, but they would eventually find it. And yes, the scripture does say that. Jesus himself says that. I have come to seek and to save the lost. Very definitely one of the reasons that Jesus came to the planet. But then I would say, are there any other reasons he came? And it was crickets. You know, occasionally you get somebody say, well, he, he came to be an example. Yes, I, I would concur. He came to live a human life uh, as someone who trusted God all of his life. And yes, that is an example to us. But any other statements made by Jesus as to why he came? And again, it was like crickets. But there are other reasons Jesus stated why he came. You go to the book of Mark. After he's preached in a town, they want him to stay and heal. And he says, no. I need to go to the other towns of Jerusalem to proclaim the kingdom of God, for that is why I have come. One of the reasons that Jesus came was to inaugurate and to begin his reign in, on, on the planet Earth. He came to start his kingdom. And if you lose sight of, this is one of Willard's points, if the only thing that we talk about is Jesus coming to die on the cross so we could go to heaven, then you can get the mistaken idea that I can ask Jesus to forgive my sins and then proceed to live however I want to. And there is nothing further from the truth. Jesus never gave that as an option. I love how Paul says in Galatians, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. What's your definition of freedom? And the kids in school always say, freedom is I can do whatever I want. And I went, oh, so let's apply your definition to Jesus' words. Christ came so you could do whatever you wanted. That's not true. That's not what freedom means. Freedom is, is that you have the ability to do what you ought to do, to do the right thing. And it was for freedom that we might be able to do the right things that Christ has set us free. But again, we have these ideas that allow us to think that, well, he's not setting up a kingdom. And he's, he's not in control. He can't tell me what to do. Absolutely, he can. He has started his kingdom. And yes, he has died to forgive us our sins. But not so that we can do whatever we want, so that we can live how we ought to live. But see, that's not the only reason. Those aren't the only two reasons he's come. Um, I, I used to say, you know, in John 17, uh, Jesus' prayer, the night before he's crucified, he prays and he says, Father, I've completed the work you've given me to do. 
If the only reason he came was to die on the cross so we could go to heaven, why is he thanking God for finishing the work before he's done it? What is that work that he came to do? Well, it was inaugurating the kingdom as one. But you see it in the very next chapter of John. In John 18, he's standing before Pilate. And this is a really interesting interchange. Pilate pulls him back away from the crowd and he says to him, are you a king? And Jesus says to him, "Um, did you figure that out or did somebody tell you that? And Pilate goes, you know, in, in disdain goes, am I a Jew? I'm not a Jew. I don't know about these things. And then Jesus says this very enlightening thing. He says, for this reason I was born. And for this reason I have come into the world that I might proclaim what is true. Why did he come? To tell us what is true. Which begs another question. Why did he need to do that? Why did he need to come to the planet to proclaim what is true? Well, I start with this because it is so fascinating how he interacts with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He's come to to inaugurate his kingdom and his reign. The Jewish political and social thing is all set on the coming of the Messiah. They want the kingdom of God established. But their view of the kingdom is not his view of the kingdom. They have a certain way that they want the kingdom of God to go. And they want the kingdom of God particularly to follow certain rules and things that they've figured up. And Jesus began running into this right away, particularly related to the Sabbath. He would heal someone on the Sabbath and the Jewish political leaders were furious. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So he cures a man who's 38 years an invalid and tells him, stand up, take up your mat and walk. 38 years of no use of his legs is overcome in an instant. And the guy stands up miraculously and does what Jesus says, picks up his mat and starts to work and the religious leaders are furious. Why are you carrying your mat? As Jesus said, they strain out a gnat and ignore the camel that got through. They they are blinded by their approach, their religious understanding of things, to the point that a man being released after 38 years of being an invalid is now set free. They can't rejoice with that. They're critical of it. And it begins early in Jesus' ministry. They don't like what he's doing, and they don't like what he's talking about. And they are growing more and more in their animosity towards him. And then we get to Matthew 23. And Matthew points this out that, it, that we come to a, um, a head in this thing. And so if you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Matthew 23. And we'll go to the next slide, Micah, if we would. 
and uh, go ahead and drop it down one more. Um, Jesus makes this assessment, and he's teaching the folks about his thing or his under his view of the religious leaders of the day. And so here he says it this way. Sorry, I'm in trouble getting my Bible. Uh, He said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They have a position of authority within Israel. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. So it's an interesting statement from him. What they're teaching and saying is fine. It's not what they're doing. Their doings do not match their teachings. And then he goes on to say, For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts. They sit in the best seats of the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplace and love being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, nor for you have one father who is in heaven. What is interesting, and I put it this way, their teachings are fine. When they opened the scrolls, of the Old Testament and taught, what they were teaching was was fine. The problem was that they were hypocritical in their lives. See, you go back to the teaching about the Sabbath. You're not to work. That's true. God has commanded us that there is a day a week that we are not to work, that it's a day of rest to focus on, on the Lord. But the hypocrisy is is that when someone is healed by the Lord on that day, they cannot accept it or love it because they consider it work. And so it's the, um, they did not practice what they preached. And here's his assessment of the religious leaders. Folks, um, in our day, this chapter is the most scary, I believe, for us believers. Because he was talking to the religious folk. He wasn't talking to the pagans and those who didn't believe. He's talking to people who who claim to believe in God and want to follow him. And he's going, here's a a big problem. I like to put it this way. Um, it's, It's such an American idea. Image is everything. Substance is nothing. And they were hypocritical. Uh, teaching at Desert, I wish I had been, I wish I had gotten a nickel every time I heard a kid say, you know, uh, there are so many hypocrites in the church. And I go, Amen. There are hypocrites amongst the religious, amongst us. By the way, it's hard to be hypocritical if you're not religious because you don't believe anything and it's all about you anyway so you're going to act that way and there's nothing hypocritical about it. it's not healthy it's not beneficial but you, you can at least say that it's not hypocritical 
But here's my problem. Paul warns us that the very things that we accuse others of, we are guilty of ourselves. So if hypocrisy really bothers you, it's a good signal from the Lord. You probably should take a good look in your own life and go, do I see hypocrisy within me? And what is hypocrisy? You say one thing and you act inconsistently with what you say. That's hypocrisy. And so Jesus' assessment of the Pharisees is the problem is you guys are hypocritical. It's all about image. It's not about substance. It's not about the things that are on God's heart. It's you've created a system that leaves you in charge and you get to call the shots. Well, he then launches, and this is the fun part of it, in... um, Verse 13, he launches into a series of woes. So let's move on, Micah. Verse 13, 15, 16, 23, 25, 27, and 29. Um, He comes up, Jesus as the prophet says to the religious leaders, woe to you. Now this is a, a, a typical Jewish statement made by a prophet of warning. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, you remember, when he saw the Lord, he says, woe is me. He pronounced the warning of seeing the holiness of God upon himself. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And he's going, woe, danger. It's like the old, you know, um, really dating myself here, Space Family Robinson, the robot that would go, danger, Will Robinson, danger. Well, this is what the prophets would do. They'd go, woe unto you. It was, it, it was a statement of warning. Very careful here. And there's this list of them. It's an expression of denunciation coupled with grief. This is so sad but it's a danger sign. Whoa. See, I told you this would be fun. This is a really happy section of the scriptures. Well, I'm not going to go through all the woes. I'll let you have the joy of of seeing some of them, but I do want to hit one of them, and it starts in verse 25. And so it reads this way. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, But inside, you were full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and plate. The outside will will automatically be clean. So he pronounces this woe. He says, guys, you have a focus. And your focus is on the outside. If image is everything and substance is nothing, of course your focus is going to be the outside, the image. And Jesus' point is you're focusing on the wrong thing. So um, I like to put it this way. Um, Every one of us has a philosophy of change. We have interesting proverbs in our language. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. 
which is a philosophy that says people can't change. So there are people running around who say people can't change. WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. If that's the way they are, that's the way they'll always be. My point is, how'd they learn that? How do they know that's true? What is their, what is their proof that, that, is, that no human being cannot change? And then there are other philosophies of change. I, I learned one at the University of Arizona in my um, undergraduate and graduate degree in education. B.F. Skinner, the educational psychologist. How do you change people? You change their behaviors. He was a behavior modification whiz. If you see a behavior by a child, you modify the behavior, get the child to act differently, the child changes. It's a philosophy of change. So my question to you is, what is your philosophy of change? Do people change? How do they change? And so... Um, this whole issue here is a question of what is Jesus' philosophy of change? And in these verses, he states, here's God's view of change. And I, I illustrate it. This is what I learned in Kenya. I call it the target illustration. <coughs> and it's like this, you know, the sign you see at the store, Target. It has three circles. It begins first with the outside ring. And the outside ring are our behaviors. What is it that we see of each other? We see how we behave. Have you noticed that there are some people, when the alarm goes off at 6 in the morning, pop right out of bed, smile on their face, and they can go about their day and get going with absolutely no struggles whatsoever. And there are other people... When the alarm goes off, take a 45 and shoot the thing three times and then go back to sleep and are content to sleep to it. Why do we behave the way we behave? That was a nonsense illustration. But I've had students. Some students, you give them a homework assignment, they go home, nobody needs to tell them, they go home, they do the assignment, they're done, they get on with their evening. And other students go home and promptly forget about it, don't want to do anything, and the next morning, five minutes before the class, they're madly scribbling down their answers. So this raises this question. Where do our behaviors come from? And again, there's a lot of philosophy on this matter. There are determinists at the university who said all of our behaviors are hardwired into us uh, through our genetics. And we are determined to behave certain ways because that's biologically how you are. And others say, no, 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 your behaviors are all completely based upon what you think. Well, here's what my observation is. You tend to behave based on what you think is important. Your values. What you value. If you value getting your homework done and doing what the teacher says to do, it's not a problem to do it. If you could care less what the teacher thinks, 
or it's not important to you what's happening at school, then the behavior to do the homework is not going to be a higher priority. When we were in Kenya, I began learning this because in other cultures you see behaviors that cause you to go, what's going on there? Just outside of Nairobi, there's a tribe of people called the Kamba. There's about half a million Kamba. They're an agricultural people. They have farms. They live in the, in, you know, just down from Nairobi. Nairobi's a mile high. They're down at about 4,000 feet. And they farm. And what's real interesting is during the rainy season, rain squalls will come through. And the Kamba, when you watch them out in their fields, when a rain squall is coming, they'll leave the field. And they'll run back to their hut or they'll get under trees. They get out of the rain. Now, this is not a cold rain. This is not like, you know, 40 degrees and you're freezing and it's raining. Uh, it's not the tropics, but it's, it's not a cold rain and it's not hard to get out of it. So you see the behavior of getting out of the rain and you go, huh, would I get out of the rain? When it's raining outside, do I get out of the rain? Sure. But I want to ask, why is that? So mine might be, I don't want to get wet. I don't want my head to get wet. I don't want my clothes to get wet. So I'm going to take an umbrella or a raincoat or get inside, get on the rain, because it's just a nuisance to be wet. But what's interesting, you ask the Kamba, why do you get out of the rain? And they say, I don't want to get malaria. And that's fascinating, because the importance of getting out of the rain is they don't want to get sick with malaria. Now, by the way, there is, there is an element here in this that is true. Once you've certain uh, strands of malaria, once you contract them, if you get chilled or wet, the parasite in your body tends to erupt again, and you come down with the symptoms of malaria, of a fever, and weakness. And the Kamba have learned through the years, man, if I'm out there working and I get wet and chilled, the malaria returns. Where do your values come from? Where is it that you develop a set of values? Here's, here's my question. Did they come down the umbilical cord of your mom into you when you were in the womb? Certain set of values are going to be placed within you. If you take an American child and at birth take them and transfer them to China, will they have American values as they grow up in China? The answer is no. Your values are not determined by your biology or by your, by your uh, genetics. They're learned. You learned to see certain things as important. And by the way, you learn them from the bullseye in the circle which are your, is your worldview or your beliefs. By beliefs here, I'm not just talking about your religious beliefs. I'm talking your beliefs about reality. What's fascinating is when you talk with a Kamba, they believe malaria is transmitted by rain. I can, I can fully understand how they came to believe that. They grew up in a place where there's malaria, and when the rains come and the rains start falling, malaria breaks out. 
and they can easily identify it that it's caused by rain. By the way, we didn't know what caused malaria until about 100 years ago. And we figured out it was this mosquito that carried the parasite. But here's the thing about your worldview, your beliefs. <clears throat> your beliefs are either true or false. Everything you believe is one or the other. And now I'm going to make an interesting worldview statement. Everything you believe, you think, is true. You wouldn't believe it if you didn't think it was true. The Kamba sincerely believed that. And so as a Westerner coming in contact with the Kamba, should I do the Star Wars, or start, the Star Trek, you know, motto? Say nothing, do nothing, maybe hand out a few umbrellas and raincoats so that they can be free of malaria? If I were to do that, given what I know, guess what I would be? A hypocrite. I know better that malaria is caused by the mosquito, not by rain. What does the rain do? Brings more water, breeds more mosquitoes, more people get bit, and malaria is spread. Now, by the way, is what I believe true? That's an interesting question. I believe it's true. How do you figure out what's true? Well, I want to go back to something. Why did Jesus come? His own words, for this reason I was born and for this reason I've come into the world, that I might proclaim what is true. Where is the source of truth? Hmm. What do you believe? I remember I met this student at um, a teacher's training college, a young man. I was going around with my friend Noella War, and we were talking to students about Christ and about God and belief in him or not. And this young man had us in his room and he said, I want you guys to know I'm a Christian. I said, wonderful. That's, that's wonderful. Many Kenyans are. So we were chatting and I said to him, um, so are you involved in a Bible study here at, at, at uh, college? He said, no, um, we have a very heavy class load here and I don't have time, so I'm not in a Bible study. Oh, um, do you go to church? Uh, no, no, I don't. Um, I've got a really heavy class load. There's so much going on, I don't have time to go to church. Oh. Um, do you have a Bible? Yes, yes, I have a Bible. He pointed to it. I said, do you ever get a chance to read it or look into it? He said, no, you're not hearing me. I have a really heavy class load and too much to do, and I can't do that. I remember I said to him, I said, this is quite fascinating. Because Jesus said, my followers live in my word. And you don't have time to read or to study or to be in a place where you hear the word of God taught. You have no time for that. And yet you claim you're a follower of Jesus. Somebody's not telling the truth here. It was a difficult conversation. 
Because here's the thing. Do we need more hypocrites? Do you think the world has enough of supply of that? Do we need to multiply that? The answer is no. What we need are people whose beliefs match the truth. Because notice what Jesus said. Here's the problem for you Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and dish. The Pharisees, as a humorous writer once said, are the see it and stop it group of the religious order. They look at behaviors and they go, that's a bad behavior, you need to stop it. And so we're very good at telling people, stop that, don't do that, change your behavior. And Jesus' point is this, you focus on the outside and it's the problem lies on the inside. Bad behaviors are driven by lies. By thoughts and ideas that are not true. John Stone Street likes to say this. Ideas have consequences. He's not the originator of that idea. That's a great quote. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. You believe something inside that is wrong, it will always display itself in behavior that is wrong. So here's what Jesus said. You guys clean the outside in the cup and dish. You focus on the outside on the behaviors. You know what you need to do first? Clean the inside. And Jesus' philosophy of change is this. We need to look inside at what we believe and go, is what I'm believing true or not? And we need to test it. Test it against what? Against what Jesus says is true. And there, you'll say to me, Matt, but there's a lot of things that Jesus never talked about. You're exactly right. But that's one reason he gave us 66 books and through the years has revealed certain things to us because in the whole of it, we can hammer out answers to things that are true. In fact, God has given us three resources to understand what is true. One, he's given us the word of God. So if you think something's true, you better be able to go back into the scripture and go, here's how the scripture teaches this to be true. This is what is true. This is what God has revealed is true. And if people have an argument with that, that's be- many people don't believe you know what's true. That's fine. I can't make you believe what is true. But I can say this. If you're not believing what is true, it is going to end up in behaviors that are bad or destructive. And just stopping the behavior will not change you. Because if the rotten idea is still there, even though you stop the behavior, it'll just show up in another rotten behavior. God wants us to change the inside. 
And so he's given us the word. You know what he's given us also? The people of God. And if you're wrestling with something, is it true or not? It's to go to godly people that you know who have wrestled with the scriptures and have wrestled with these ideas and ask them, what what do you say? What What do you think of my ideas? What is true? And it's part of the the need for one another to reflect to one another. Wow. Um, You remember in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had eaten, they're hiding in the bushes. They've made their first clothes in the style of camo, and they're hiding there in the bushes. And God comes to Adam and says, where are you? And God's not asking that question because he doesn't know. He's asking that for Adam. He wants Adam to start to realize, I am hiding from the creator of the universe who made the eye and knows everything. How stupid is that? Come to your senses. Many of us think we can hide from God. There's an interesting idea. Is that true? (laughs) No. But if you think you can hide from God, you're going to do some really silly things as behaviors. And Adam then answers, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God asks a really interesting question right after that. He says to Adam, who told you you were naked? That's a wonderful question because the cast of characters at that point is so small. Did God tell him he was naked? No. Adam and Eve were created naked, and they felt no shame. So you got Adam and Eve. Did Adam and Eve tell each other, ah, you're naked? We don't have that in the story. But there is one other character. It's the enemy. And he's the accuser, and he's a liar. So he says to Adam, see, you're naked. You got nothing. Shame on you. And Adam believed it. Shame on me for being how God created me to be. That never happens in our day. All you got to do is go to a high school and you'll see a whole school full of little girls who all are ashamed of something. That's how God created them. Why? They believe a lie. The lie has been spoken to them. You're undesirable for some reason. You're not beautiful enough. Why? Your eyes are too far apart, too close together. The nose, it goes on and on and on. And you go, why do they believe the lie? Because they don't really believe what is true about them. Same is true for young men. They all get caught up in all of this machismo and how tough I am and I'm going to bully people because that somehow shows I'm a man because they're scared to death that they're not enough. Why? They believe the lie. And here is what Jesus said. Folks, we need to clean the inside and the outside will take care of itself. So, thoughts on this? Scripture has many. Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind. Folks, coming to know Jesus is like a birth of a baby. It's the beginning point. The real work of raising the child happens after the birth. And it involves a lot of effort. And guess what? You're coming to Christ. One belief changed when you came to Christ. And that was the belief that you could save yourself. And you came to realize that's not true. I can't save myself. I need the Lord to save me. And guess what you did with that lie? You repented of it. God, I've been believing a lie. I'm going to call it what it is. It's a lie. I'm going to turn from the lie to what is true. It is you, God, that saves me. Yay! One lie down. Any more? This is why David prayed, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. You've got the word of God, the people of God, and last, you've got the spirit of God. Want to pray a scary prayer? Ask God to search your thoughts and say, Lord, I want you to show me where I'm believing something that is a lie. It'll be hard because you believe it so much to let go of it will feel like you're dying. That's how you know you're getting rid of the lie. It'll feel like death. It'll feel like I'm letting go of what I know is the only hope or safety for me. To let go of that and then believe what is true is terrifying. So it is by repentance and faith that we change what's on the inside. We acknowledge that it's a lie and we then replace it with what is true. Once that has taken place on the inside, guess what Jesus said? If you clean the inside, then the outside will take care of itself the behavior will begin to change. So, I have a question for you. What do you believe? What is it that you really believe? Here's another scary question. Is to ask someone who knows and loves you well, do you see any hypocrisy in my life? I see a show of hands. How many have asked somebody that question? I haven't. That's a scary one. To say, someone who loves you, do you see anything in me that does not match what I say? Because that was the problem for the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Their behaviors did not match teaching and Jesus has told us I want you to change as you receive Christ Jesus so walk in him 
How'd you receive him? Repentance and faith. How do you walk in Jesus? Repentance and faith. And all of us have work to do to going, what is it that I'm believing that's not true about reality and the world and myself and my relationships and my value? It is on and on and on. And God is gracious. He doesn't dump the truck on you and go, I, I expect everything to change tomorrow. God is very gracious. He likes to go one thing at a time. So you can pray, Lord, what do you want me to change? What do I need to, to begin to believe differently? Help me to see that. Because he came into the world for that purpose, to proclaim what is true. Bring, bring people up. Let me take a moment to pray. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you were um, blunt and clear with the Pharisees as to the issues and the things that you saw, that you reflected to them rightly what was happening. Lord, I pray for each of us that you would help us in your mercy. Show us, Lord, where in our lives we are believing what is not true. Lord, give us grace to repent and to replace those lies with what is true. Because without you, we can't do it. We know we need your help. So we call to you to be gracious and merciful. In Christ's name, amen.